Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Today, we will go down into the Salt and Light Cellar and bring up some of our favorite conversations from the last season. First, we speak with filmmaker Jared Brock about his film, Red Light, Green Light, that looks at prostitution and sex trafficking. And Joe Zambone tells us about his new album, Brothers. In our second half hour, Father Garrick DeBona tells us what makes a good homily and a good homilist. At the end of the program, we will meet singer-songwriter Marie Miller. We begin now with Red Light, Green Light. In December 2013, the Supreme Court of Canada found that the laws prohibiting brothels, public communication for the purpose of prostitution, and living on the profits of prostitution to be unconstitutional. In response, the Conservative government of Canada responded with a proposed rewrite of the law with some additions. For the first time in Canada's history, the buying of sexual services would be illegal. For the first time, prostituted or trafficked people would be seen as victims of coercion or circumstance. And for the first time, the government of Canada would provide millions of dollars to help women and youth leave prostitution. This is a recognition that the buying and selling of sex quite often involves slavery and trafficking. But at the same time, many do not see the connection between prostitution and sex trafficking and advocate that the solution is the legalization of prostitution. While all this is happening, two filmmakers travel across 10 countries exploring the issue, trying to answer the question, how can we prevent sexual exploitation before it happens in the first place? And to tell us all about their film, Red Light, Green Light, I am now joined by producer and co-director Jared Brock. Jay, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Deacon Pedro. So, just to be clear, what is the status of the prostitution law in Canada right now? So right now, it just passed second hearing, so now it's off to Committee on Justice and Human Rights. Uh, it'll go through committee and then reporting, and then if it passes third reading, it'll go to the Senate and then royal assent. And we've got to get all that done by December 20th. Otherwise, we'll have coast-to-coast fully decriminalized prostitution with no voting necessary. So lots to do. So fully de- if, if all, none of that happens before December, fully decriminalized prostitution across Canada based on the Supreme Court's decision of last year. That's right. Okay. So how did you and your wife, Michelle, end up getting involved in this issue? <laughs> yeah. So we've been running a charity for about seven years called Hope for the Soul, our Mission is to uh, end sexual exploitation one word at a time. Yeah. And we'd made another film before and, uh, you know, doing a lot of awareness, but we'd actually tried to avoid the prostitution debate for a long time. But then uh, we sensed that this Supreme Court case was coming down the line, and um, we knew we couldn't um, keep it separate any longer. We knew that prostitution and trafficking were linked, and so we went to 10 countries to look at different models to see how countries were Dealing with prostitution, and our, our question the whole time was, what is the best way to prevent sex trafficking? So wait, let me, let me back up. So you were, you were, you were uh, your, your website or your organization, Hope for the Sold, is specifically to deal with sex trafficking and sex slavery. Why, were you, why didn't you want to go into the prostitution debate? How, was there... because, yeah, because it's such a heated issue. You know, both sides were so polarized and angry, and there's this huge, you know, kind of gray area of choice. Like, for example, if a girl is over 18 and she's selling her body, is it her choice? 
yeah. if she was trafficked as a 14 year old you know those are yeah. questions that we had to we wanted to avoid but eventually we decided to tackle it anyways so you figured out that you couldn't you couldn't deal with one issue without dealing with the whole issue which includes the other issue <laughs> yeah they're so connected you know um, prostitution is the end destination for every single sex trafficking victim so yeah, of course. we knew that we had to deal with it yeah, of course. So you're filmmakers. You went off to 10 different countries, including countries that have legalized prostitution and countries that don't. So what did you find? Yeah, so we went to places like the Netherlands, and we went to Sweden, and we went to Switzerland and Germany and Austria and Hungary and all over the states and Canada. And yeah. What we found is that, on average, when a country legalizes prostitution, they have an increase in demand for paid sex. That kind of makes sense. If something's legal, yeah. people are more likely to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, we did find a hopeful alternative in, in Sweden. Uh-huh. Um, for far too long, countries have been given kind of two extreme options, prohibition or legalization. Yeah. Um, Sweden decided to take a third way. They met in the middle and said, hey, let's help these girls because they're overwhelmingly victims of circumstance, but let's also deal with the Johns, the guys who are creating this problem. We're paying for the sex, yeah. If no one was paying for sex, no one would be trafficked for sex. Right. So that's what they do. So that's the, the sweet, because I've heard a lot about the Swedish model. So mm. the Swedish model criminalizes the buying, so the John, the guy that's paying for the sex, but not the prostitute. That's right. There's no other case in Canada where we criminalize the victim. So, for instance, if there's a battered woman who has an abusive husband, we never arrest the woman to get her away from that. We go after the guy who's causing the problem, same with the rape victim. So we think that this should also apply to prostitution. So how is that working in Sweden, then? Is it successful? Yeah, so Sweden, compared to countries around it that have legalized prostitution, have way less trafficking and prostitution. We actually talked to the head of anti-trafficking in Sweden, and uh-huh. they said that they've tapped uh, wiretap conversations with pimps and traffickers who said, yeah, we can't sell girls in Sweden. It's not profitable. No one's paying for sex. We've got to choose something else. So, yeah, it's, when you end demand for something, it drives up the market. So the the argument that de- uh, criminalizing it would drive the industry, if I can call it that, underground, mm-hmm. did you find that to be false? Well, we've heard that argument a lot. What's interesting about that is prostitution can never go too far underground because um, there has to be a way for men to be able to find it to pay for it. So yes. I'm a guy, and if I really want to pay for sex, I will find it, no yes. matter how far underground it is. Yes. So we interviewed a number of police officers, and they said, hey, we just think like John. If John can find prostitution, we can find prostitution. Yeah, of course. The other, the, the bigger issue, of course, is, um, you know, there's always going to be an underground market for child pornography and child abuse and heroin and things of this nature. But just because something's underground, does that mean we should somehow legalize it? I think the bigger question we should be asking is, do we want to make it easier or harder to pay mm-hmm. for sex? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, I, I, I was very struck by one of the, one of the persons, pe- people you interview in the film who says that the, the, that the analogy is you have a sweatshop, children, you know, slave labor, and, and let's just make it safer for them, give them a fan instead mm-hmm. of, uh, yeah. yeah, so that's, that's the analogy. Um, uh, hope for the sold uh, dedicated to putting an end to sex trafficking, is that sort of the hope of that organization? Yeah, that's that's our goal as a charity is, um, you know, if we can end demand for paid sex, we can end sex trafficking. You know, there's always going to be guys who are going to be willing to pay for sex. But if we can deal with the 80-20, you know, the college bachelor parties, the guys cheating on their wives, the sex addicts, if we can deal with the majority of it, 
if every country in the world adopted that kind of end-demand approach, we would literally see the prevention of the abuse of, of millions of women and children in our lifetime. And we've just met so many victims and so many burnt-out aftercare workers that were like, man, we need to go far upstream and prevent this before it happens in the first place. So you, you spoke to a lot of victims, and I'm sure you've, you've met a lot of them. You deal mm-hmm. with them. Uh, th- did you find uh, commonalities? I- is there a way to educate uh, kids as they're growing up so that they don't fall in the traps? Or is that, you know, what do you do yeah, to prevent it? There was a lot of commonalities. Um, child abuse in almost every circumstance. Mm. Uh, poverty. Uh, racism plays a huge role. Right. Um, you know, exploiting vulnerable people groups. Um, age just on and on and on. Um, we definitely can do a lot more work in schools. Um, we interviewed a, a woman in, in Las Vegas who her big issue that she's trying to deal with uh, at her program is um, grade 12 boys pimping grade 9 girls out of bathroom stalls at public high schools. So we can definitely do more uh, prevention. That said, you know, if every woman in the world had a doctorate degree and made half a million dollars a year, if men are paying for sex, someone will still find a way to traffic women. So we definitely need to educate girls, but we also need to train up our boys to help them realize that, uh, you know, people's bodies are not to be bought and sold or rented. Mm -hmm. What's your hope for the film? Where can people see it? Yeah, we've been, uh, we've shown this film in over 80 cities in the last seven months. And uh, our hope with the film is that people will come in with an open mind and be able to hear the stories to, um, off with these uh, people that they're going to see on the screen and really walk away with an understanding of this is how we can prevent sex in Canada and America and countries around the world. Um, we've got to start targeting the market. We've got to start focusing on human worth and gender equality and dignity, things, you know, deep values that we hold dear. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's been amazing. The lights come on in the, in the eyes of, you know, thousands of people across our country. If they say, oh, okay, I understand this, I get it. That's, it's really gratifying, but we got a lot of work to do. So. Yeah, no, that's good education. Um, thank you for, your, for what you're doing. I, I love the film. I think it's very important. I'd encourage everyone to, to learn more about it. So it's redlightgreenlightfilm.com. You can find out more information there as to where uh, where you can watch the film or, or how to, I don't know if it's on DVD or if it will be. But, uh, Jared, thank you so much for what you're doing and uh, for you and your wife, Michelle, for what you're doing and, and keep up the good work. Thanks for having me, Dr. Vader. Jared Brock and his wife, Michelle, are the founders of Hope for the Sold. They are also the directors and producers of the film Red Light, Green Light. You can find out more at that website, redlightgreenlightfilm.com. Here now is our featured artist of the week, Joe Zambone, with Get Better from his new album, Brothers.
was Joe Zambone with Get Better from his album Brothers. Now, last we had Joe Zambone on the show, I think it may have been the first time he was on the program, and I said that he was on his way to becoming one of the freshest sounds in the Catholic music scene. And with this new album, Brothers, I think that he's proven it. Since he was last here, after the release of his album There and Here, Joe put out another album, Sleeper Rise, in April 2012, and now this new album, Brothers. It is his fifth album, and to tell us all about it, here now is Joe Zambone. Joe, welcome back to the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you for having me, Pedro. So, uh, what would you say is different um, about this album? I think maybe musically it's a bit more big choruses, some stomp claps, uh, not, I wouldn't call it sing-along, but I feel like there's more yeah, the, the big choruses on this album, which I don't think I've really done yet on any of my albums. So musically, I think that's uh, something new from this album. Um, lyrically, I think I still I try to always be as raw and honest as I can, so that's yeah. probably the same. And mm-hmm. um, instrumentation-wise, it's still, I guess, kind of like the same vein, although I'm not really sure... Now, you you worked with a different producer this time, though, didn't you? I guess so, yeah. Um, Who's the producer? Well, it's my brother, my brother Nick. Um, yeah. We, uh, we bunked out in my parents' uh, farmhouse for the month, and we uh, brought in some musicians to help us out with a different um, instrumentation, but we, we were basically together for the whole month, and even the, kind of I guess, the pre-production, just kind of mapping out what we want to do with the song. So, yeah, he, uh, he definitely had his finger in in uh, this album uh, in a big way. Now, had you worked with your brother like that before? Uh, we've done music together, but specifically where I gave him the reins of, you know, he's the sound engineer, you know, like, what do you want to do with percussion? What do you want to see happen right. with layering and everything? Uh, he, I mean, he got to call a lot of the shots, which 
again, it's kind of new for us um, in that relationship, but also just uh, musically wise, I think. Right. So how do you, how do you, Joe Zambone, go about? I guess it's two questions. How do you go about the the music, the writing process for you, and then how do you how do you transfer that into an album? How do you put together an album? Yeah, that can be a it can be a long process because sometimes I write stuff that never makes it on an album uh-huh. or it just stays on the shelf for a while. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, in in the writing process, um, sometimes it's it's interesting. Like sometimes I'll start writing like a group of songs that I kind of want to like. I'm already actually thinking, I'm thinking album-wise. Yeah. Like, I think this song will flow nice into that song. This okay. theme is going to tie in with that theme. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so when I start writing, um, I have those ideas in mind. And then, like, yeah, when I'm then getting closer to the actual, okay, like, I could book off this time to, to record, then I start actually thinking more about instrumentation. How do I want to dress up the song? And sometimes then it's actually more like, I guess, the production side of it where okay, maybe I should reorganize the song a bit to make it more album-friendly and, okay. and possibly even... I, I don't I don't actually spend a lot of time on this, but to make it more radio-friendly, uh-huh. um, it probably actually bites me in the butt when I don't... <laughs> um, when I don't make my songs so radio-friendly, um, yeah. so it, sometimes people don't uh, pick it up because it's too long or too boring or something. I don't know for radio. There's so. some crazy ending. Yeah. Um, I don't want to say that the album is like a mishmash, but because it isn't. But do you get the sense, or or did that there? Are, I mean, there are some songs, and we've heard "Dead Man Rise." We just heard "Get Better." Those two songs are very different. And then there's you know like the uh, the Jesus song, but then that's different than the 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 Irish jig. That that how did sort of you make all those fit into one? album that's called Brothers. Uh, Pedro, you are, are getting right at the uh, <coughs> the heart of this, because interestingly enough, my plan was just to do an EP. So it was going to be a Brothers EP, and I feel on EPs, you can, you know, just really put a mishmash, you know, yeah, you know, stew of different songs together that don't really have too much of a connection, because you're just, you're kind of just highlighting a few songs that mm-hmm. are kind of recent for you and it just happened that you know we were started recording and we we're like wow actually i have time because <clears throat> time was the biggest issue i thought i didn't have time to record a full album length but we ended up having time yeah and so then in the end i have you know a song like yeah the irish jig this instrumentation i uh, going then you know a few songs later you got like a gregorian chant song that's right yes and it, i guess it could kind of I was a little, like, hesitant about it, like, is this going to feel too jarring? But at the same time, too, then I was like, but I want all these songs to be here. Um, and so it's enough to to keep it together. I don't really know what is the unifying thread throughout the whole thing, except the production of it. Like, it, it's, yeah. it's the, the sound of it is all similar, like, the way that it's recorded. So yeah. I feel that keeps it together well let me ask you this then because it is called brothers and and, and i'm hoping that you're going to say that it's more than just the fact that you worked with your brother nick on it is there more significance to the title well it's so definitely it started out as like hey it's going to be like a fun brothers thing and just that word kept on being thrown around and so i was like it'd be cool to just call it brothers mm-hmm. um but there are a few like there's a song you know called remember the poor mm-hmm. and um 
And there's a few different things, like even in Dead Man Rise, if you look at the lyrics, there is a sense of like, I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I'm a brother to those who are poor, to those, right. um, you know, who are in need. And I wouldn't go so far to say it's like, like strongly like a social justice theme, but it's more a thing of like identifying like myself with kind of these people in different places. Even in one of the last songs, um, Nothing is Impossible, this, this idea of like there's no prison cell where light can't reach. Yeah. Like that prison cell is, is I mean, the prison cell of our own heart, you know, like where are you locked up? But also like literally like there's people, brothers in prison mm-hmm. that I believe, you know, like God is not out of the reach of them, you know, like um, yeah, that God course. can even reach, you know, the greatest sinner and that, that sinner can even be myself. So I think brothers is then like there was that that sense of like the fraternity um, among like yeah the different kind of scopes of mm-hmm. people you know mm-hmm. absolutely now you have two album release concerts coming up May second uh, in Ottawa and May third in Toronto so people can get more information at your website and I'll give that at, that uh, at the end of the program but then your plan is also to take it on tour to the East Coast correct yeah so my hope is to kind of get across Canada by the end of the summer and then also tackle the States. So in May, my plan is to do two weeks, uh, the first two weeks in the East Coast of Canada, and then July, start heading west for the full month all the way to Victoria. Um, And then August, if it all comes together, to then do two weeks down in the States, mostly on the East Coast. uh, And so... Hopefully this all comes together to just kind of, again, so spread the brothers. <laughs> <laughs> so if people are listening and they want to bring you, is that what you're saying? If people want to bring you, <laughs> th- th- they should contact you for yes, a concert. Yes, please do. Um, Organize most, a concert. Most of it, it's already in the works. Yeah. But um, all to say, too, I mean, hopefully I'll be coming near, if you, if you live in Canada, I mean, I'll be coming near where you could live. <laughs> um, so just keep close to then my as the dates start to get settled um, hopefully I'll be able to stop near town and you'll get a chance to, to hear some of the new music so. excellent good good and we're also giving away a copy of the album so uh, one of our listeners will have a chance to to get a free copy of brothers so that's a reminder for all our listeners to go to our website and, and enter your name and, and uh, an email address for a chance to win we'll, we'll give that price away uh, next week, thanks thanks to the generous support of Joe Zambone. Um, Joe, thank you very much for what you're doing and, and for this album and for bringing me my personal copy a couple weeks ago. I've been listening to it. It's very good. Oh, thank you. Thanks for, uh, I mean, uh, thanks for all the support you give me. And uh, yeah, I, I'm excited to share this album. So I'm, I'm glad there's avenues like yourself to make it available for people. Thank you. Thank you. And I think we can say safely that all these songs are being heard for the first time, debut, radio debut, right here on this program. So if you like, and again, I don't want to say it's a mishmash, but it, there's Gregorian, there's stuff that sounds like musical theater, there's Irish jig, there's dance tunes, there's praise and worship, Jesus songs, there's everything's in there. Y- everybody's going to be happy with this album. So that's Joe Zambone's Brothers. Uh, Joe now lives in Toronto, where he works as a pastoral assistant at York University's Catholic Chaplaincy. You can visit him and purchase his music at joezambonemusic.com. Here now is Joe with another track from that album, I Just Want Peace, from the new album, Brothers.
Listening to Joe Zambone with I Just Want Peace from his new album, Brothers. You're listening to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Check out our website at saltandlighttv.org slash radio. Pope Benedict XVI wrote in the Apostolic Exhortation Verbum Domini that the homily is a means of bringing the scriptural message to life in a way that helps the faithful to realize that God's Word is present and at work in their everyday lives. Now add to that the 18 pages that Pope Francis dedicated to preaching in his Apostolic Exhortation Evangelii Gaudium. In it, he writes, The homily is the touchstone for judging a pastor's closeness and ability to communicate to his people. We know, he continues, that the faithful attach great importance to it and that both they and their ordained ministers suffer because of homilies, the laity from having to listen to them and the clergy from having to preach them. Um, I don't know about you, our listeners, but when When was the last time that you heard a good homily? Or better yet, what is a good homily? To tell us, I am now joined by Father Garrick DeBona of St. Meinrad Seminary and School of Theology. Father, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you for having me. I I hope that you were smiling as I was. I love that quote from Pope Francis about suffering through homilies. Um, oh, but, yes, I, I really resonated <laughs> when uh, I read that in the exhortation. Yes. Um, now, I once uh, heard Cardinal Levada, uh, when he was prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of, of Faith, say that a good homily has to be scriptural, catechetical, pastoral, and liturgical. Mm-hmm. Would you say that that's true, and would you even say that that's possible? Oh, I would say that that's absolutely true, and I think uh, when the Pope is... Um, you know, he, when he gives his exhortation, uh, his his bottom line is that the homily has to set the heart on fire. Ah, yes. And uh, in that sense, I think the real experts are the, the baptized faithful all in the pew who are waiting and eager to have their hearts set on fire. So um, from my perspective, they are the ones that are really um, helping to to improve the homily. And in fact, I tell my students 
that when they get to parishes after they're ordained, uh, one thing that they should make a practice of is to um, pass out cards at the end of the liturgy and ask, what did you what hear? What did you hear, yes. Because uh, it is so important that um, we have a dialogue with our people. And when the Pope says that the pastor, the shepherd, has to smell like the sheep, yes. The homily yeah. is a good chance to be able to, you know, a litmus test mm-hmm. about that very reality. Okay, let me let me stop you there for a second because this is happens to me all the time. People say, "Oh, that was a great deacon. That was a great homily," mm-hmm. and then I'll say, "What did you hear?" Exactly. And they and they I don't know what they heard because what they what they tell me is not at all what I said, but they still yeah. think it was a great homily. So the litmus test is: Am I clear in what I'm communicating? Not just exactly. Was it good? And I tell my students that uh, what they can strive for uh, and what they should strive for is a single focus sentence. Uh-huh. And in that sense, it, the homily ought to be um, direct and simple in the sense that it is getting across what the late Bishop Ken Untner referred to as yeah. a pearl, uh-huh. uh, because the purpose of the homily in the end, the liturgical homily, is to deepen the faith of the baptized not uh, different from a theme sentence. It's rather something that is uh, something that will bring them, set their heart on fire. Uh-huh. And um, in, in that sense, I think the homily uh, in the end has to do with forming the Christian community so that it's, it's, it does have all the aspects that um, Cardinal Levada mentioned mm-hmm. uh, that are echoed by uh, Pope Francis, mm-hmm. Because those those very realities that uh, he mentioned, the scriptural, the catechetical, and so on, those mm-hmm. are indispensable instruments in formation for the Christian community. Okay, so I was I was going to ask you what makes a good homily, but I think you've answered. So one message, the focus or the pearl. Yeah. Uh, the uh, can you give an example? What would be a, a a key key message for I don't know the Good Shepherd, the the Gospel of the Good Shepherd that that day, for example. Well, I would say God's love is present among his people, and uh, he has sacrificed himself uh, for us and, and lives with us even now. So you, t- uh, you, would, you would take that whole, the, the readings of the day, and, but focus it uh, around that one statement? Yes, and, you know, I mean, one could turn that kind of thing into a, uh, let's say, how, how would you unfold that kind of thing if, if I was preaching that that gospel uh, in um, one part of the world uh, who, w- right. who would know perhaps what a shepherd is very readily. Yeah, okay. Uh, I would talk about images uh, that would relate to the cultural environment there. Yeah. But if I was preaching this homily in Toronto or New York City yeah. uh, among people who really have very little idea of what a shepherd is, uh-huh. I might have to use other kinds of images in order to uh, allow them to see what the scriptures are saying right now i'm intrigued by by uh by what you said about about setting hearts on fire and i, I don't remember who it was but uh, it might have been john chrysostom who, who was a great preacher and he said that when when i preach people come i light myself on fire and people come to watch me burn um, i think it was john wesley that said oh, that was it? but uh, i could be wrong about i, I that. don't know it, but it's, it's a great quote it's um, a wonderful quote and i use it all the time Okay, because well, <laughs> I really think it begins to speak about the witness of preaching. So, but and the passion is what the word I would use. Yes, absolutely. So, so, so here's my question: How much of how much of it is um, the medium is the message? Is it what we say versus how we say it? Because you might have great content and a great cl- focus, 
but if you're not passionate about it and you're reading it from the pulpit, it might not set any hearts on fire. Uh, I agree. I think that the witness value in today's culture is absolutely crucial. Uh, And uh, Pope Paul VI was onto this uh, Uh some years ago when he spoke to uh, a group in Rome and, and mentioned that the witness... Uh, value is cannot be underestimated by the Christian community. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I think people are looking for authenticity. They're looking for conviction. They're looking for people who have experienced God's love and want to pass that on to others. And they can get all the information they want off the Internet. Yes. You know, in that sense, there's tons of stuff available that they can check all week at their office, uh, at home. But where are they going to find... Uh, someone who is going to be convincing, who has seen the Lord and wants to uh, bring that to him. The Pope spends a long time talking about charismatic preaching, uh-huh. where uh, we can, uh, you know, see that you know the the charismatic preaching gets its mandate from the encounter with the risen Lord. Right. So I think people want someone who has seen God. Uh, so to speak, and um, like Moses has encountered the holy and has been called to then liberate the people right. and to bring them to a promised land. So, so in the 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 minute or so that that we have left, well, we have more, but I want to talk about the conference. Um, how would you go about preparing a a good homilist? What is uh, what do we do to prepare? I think the key is to start early in the week. Um, If you're preaching the Sunday homily, I would say take Monday morning to start reviewing the lectionary text for Mm -hmm. the coming uh, weekend. Another, uh, uh, in my mind, indispensable guide and partner in all of this has to be the people themselves. Mm -hmm. So that what's going on in your parish that's going to inform the homily, obviously if you've had a tragedy in the parish, uh, someone has died unexpectedly, you're going to be preaching... Right. the the raising of Lazarus uh, during Lent in a different way than if you had not. The other conversation partner, I think, is very definitely looking at the Roman Missal and looking at the liturgical text. Okay. How do these begin to form uh, or crystallize uh, a a kind of pattern and and begin to articulate even a method that uh, you can begin to structure the homily around? Mm -hmm. Uh, Being clear... One of the biggest complaints people have, and you've hinted at it uh, earlier, uh, is that there's uh, too much going on, and there needs to be a simplicity. So how can you structure the homily so people are following along with you? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not like we're there to to construct some private meditation. We're there for the sake of the listener, for the sake of the baptized who are unpacking it with us. Right, right. Uh, there's going to be a conference in homiletics uh, hosted by the St. Augustine Seminary in Toronto in in July, July 7th and 10th. I know that you're going to be in Toronto for that. Can you tell us a little bit about the focus of that conference? The the focus of the conference is really going to be a celebration, as I understand it, of the Archdiocese's centenary. And uh, my understanding is that um, the church leaders want to uh, emphasize preaching, and rightly so, yes. because, um, you know, the the new evangelization is going to um, impact everybody one way or the other, and I think uh, drawing a line and highlighting this under, uh, is really a, is an excellent way of celebrating the 
this very important event for the Archdiocese. Okay, so then that's going to be July 7th to 10th. I presume it's it's a conference f- on homiletics, so it's for people, priests, deacons, who are, are preachers, I guess. Correct, it's liturgical open, preaching. Th- yes. And so they've, they've gotten a number of people that are going to talk about preaching from uh, different perspectives. Yes. And I think, at least from my um, understanding of the kind of conferences I've been to before on preaching where the diocese participates on this kind of level, it's a real shot in the arm Good. for people to be able to kind of say, you know, this is really what we're about, and I'm anxious to bring this kind of good news to people. Right. Father Garrick de Bona, thank you very much for sharing a little bit of, of this with us. I'm very passionate about this topic. Um, I can tell, <laughs> and I'm, I'm very grateful to talk to you about it. Yes, excellent. So hopefully we can set some hearts on fire. That would be wonderful. Father Garrick de Bona is a Benedictine priest. He's a member of the St. Meinred Arch Abbey. He is also a professor of homiletics and communication at St. Meinred Seminary and School of Theology. He has published several books and articles on preaching, cultural studies, and religious communication. Here now is our featured artist of the week, Marie Miller, with Song of a Martyr from her album, You're Not Alone. Our freedom, he wants our homes. He demands us to worship a thing made of gold, but we won't. At the sound of his music, he wants us to dance and forsake our faith for the sake of a But we won't Brothers, we are not so Let us not forget 
That was Marie Miller with Song of a Martyr from her album, You're Not Alone. Marie Miller is classified, and I love how we classify artists. She's classified as a modern folk singer-songwriter who often blends a mesh of modern folk, pop, and country. But that probably means nothing to you because you just heard two of her songs. So that's what matters. Now, what you don't know is that her 2007 song, Cold, remained on the Christian music charts in the United States for four months. And the title song of her latest album, You're Not Alone, is currently number two in the Christian adult contemporary and the contemporary hit radio chart, also in the States. So whatever she's doing, she's doing it well. And I'm very pleased to welcome Marie Miller now to the Salt and Light Hour. Marie, welcome. Thank you. It's so great to be here. It is. It's good. I'm, I'm always excited when when I get to meet new artists. And you're not that new. I mean, you're new, but you're not. You're new to me, and that's very right. exciting. <laughs> um, so tell me, y- what was growing up in the Miller household like? Growing up in the Miller household was amazing. Um, oh. Still amazing, I have to tell you. I, I live at home, so, oh, nice. <laughs> so it's great. <laughs> okay. um, uh, yes, I have uh, nine siblings, and eight of us are, are at home. I live. I have an apartment in Nashville, but I really try to be at home as much as possible since I'm wow. on the road so much. So, so yeah, so I'm there. I'm the oldest at home, and um, I've got um, three sisters under me, all... Um, in school at Christendom College in Front Royal, okay, uh, Virginia, and then a bunch of brothers and a little sister who's seven, and it's just really fun. It's very loud, of course, all the time. Oh my goodness! Food, um, and uh, lots of uh, music, <laughs> and um, we yeah we have a good time. So you're the el- you're the oldest. You said the oldest of nine. I'm actually, I'm the third oldest oh, okay. of 10, so the I'm the th- oldest at home. Yeah. Ah, I see. Okay. You're the third oldest of 10, so your parents are saints, is what you're saying. No, <laughs> I think so. Oh, good. Sounds like it. So, um, you mentioned there's uh, lots of music at home. Um, were you, you know, did you have to do piano lessons when you were little? How was that? Yes, I did. We, we definitely were strongly encouraged, um, as my parents would word it, to practice <laughs> piano. Uh, and uh, we um, all could play different instruments. We kind of could pick an instrument, too, along with piano. So I picked mandolin and guitar. Okay. Um, yeah, and, uh, yeah, I thought mandolin was, was kind of a unique instrument, but yes. my 21-year-old sister has now been playing the harp for a few years, Beautiful. so that always trumps in the house for, like, the coolest instrument because it's, like, you know, bigger than she is. Right. Um, I think the bazooki bazooki is pretty cool. Tell me about the bazooki. Uh, the bazooki is cool. Bazooki is a uh, a lot like a mandolin. It's it's an octave lower. Uh huh. It has a, that really fun kind of cool Greek sound. Uh huh. Um, and yeah, I love that. I, I I don't get to play it enough. No. I and and you just pick that randomly. It's, your 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 family's not Greek, is it? We're not. Okay. Um, people oftentimes think that I look Greek. So mm. I've actually had people say, like, are you Greek? Are you and Greek? I'm like, no, I just like the food. And the yes. <laughs> yes, yes. And the weather. Good. So so clearly a musical household, uh, faith-filled household as well, Catholic household? Yes, yeah. Um, very Catholic. Um, we, we're very blessed because we live in, a, in an area in Virginia where there's a lot of big Catholic families. Oh, yeah. And that just always seemed very normal. To me, you mm-hmm. know that you know the rosary was a part of your daily life. Mass was a part of your daily life. Uh-huh. Um, adoration, 
um, you know, it was just, I thought that was normal, kind of, you know, and then yeah. um, now I, I do I do pop and Christian music. Yeah. Um, so, and I mean, especially when I'm on the road doing pop, you really see that that is actually very extraordinary, very different um, today, and so I'm just even more grateful for my parents. I just, like, want to call them every night <laughs> after I'm on the road doing pop stuff and say thank you so much. Oh, uh, that's for, so sweet for being so awesome. Uh-huh. Now, did you were you always okay with the faith? Did you go through like a little rebellion in your adolescent years or or not? Um, a very tiny one probably <laughs> in comparison. Um Yeah. But you know, I I um had a lot of friends growing up that were good kids and we were uh-huh. all kind of, you know, okay, we, of course we go to church, you know, whatever. And there was about I think we're 14, 15, 16 um when it really with decision time, I felt like we're like, okay, so is, this, is your faith going to become your own, mm-hmm. or you know, or, or are you going to let it go and it just be kind of part of your heritage, or is it going to be part of your life? Right. And um, I was really blessed to have older siblings that were making had already made that decision really in their life, right. and I. Uh, so yeah, so so still yeah, definitely you know, growing up, um, it's. I'm always I, I, now. I, now I can tell my parents they're like, "Oh yeah, about one time I snuck out of the house." <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're like, "Oh my gosh!" Um, right. But uh, in general, I, I think I, I think I was probably a pretty good good kid overall. Probably now. Probably. Um, um, wh- when did you start writing music? Were you playing in church? Like, how did how did your sort of public musical career begin? Right. I started songwriting actually around that age when. Um, we're talking about choosing your faith as your own. My first song that I wrote was called "The Road," uh-huh. and um, it was a song about um, about heaven. Hmm. And um, I say, uh, of all the wor- all the roads the world has has, has chose, I, I choose the road that leads leads me home. Hmm. And um, that was kind of that was the first song I wrote, and it's been really cool because it's been a part of my musical journey. Um, this idea that everything that I'm doing is hopefully, um, you know, bringing me one step closer to, to home, to right. heaven. Um, and, uh, yeah, so and then I, I started performing around 12. Uh-huh. Um, so even before I was songwriting, I was performing. Yeah. And so it's been about, I'm 24 now. Right. So, so I'm trying for 12, 12 years. years. Now, you mentioned that your all your siblings, or most of them, play instruments as well. Did you play together? Do you play with a band? Are they your band? Like, oh. That no. would be so cool. It would be? Um, <laughs> yeah, they're not. Sometimes my sister, Tess, is a 21-year-old. She will play harp when we do lit- right. liturgical music. Yes. Um, which is really cool. And then my sister, Justina, mm-hmm. um, is older than me. She used to play with me all the time, and now she lives in San Diego and is very busy oh, um, and can't. So, so it is that, just kind of me on my own. <laughs> right. Okay, now, would you... Uh, and I, I know your your music is is played on Christian stations. Do you see yourself as a Christian artist or as a, a or a, or just a musician that happens to be Christian? How do you see that right. your, your mission as ministry? Um, you know, it's interesting. I I would say I'm an artist in the um, JP two sense in his letters to in his letters to uh-huh. artists. Yeah, um, where he says that uh, beauty stirs in us the hidden nostalgia for God, and hmm. that's kind of my mission as an artist is to make beautiful music that will stir in, in um, the listeners um, mm-hmm. that um, this is a, a call to transcendence right. um, you know we're very um, easily um, 
drawn um, by material things and by very fast-feeling pleasures. But I think when we hear beautiful music, um, see beautiful art, um, watch a movie that's inspiring, is that we, we are truly, we want higher things. Mm-hmm. So I guess in a, a sense I would say maybe I'm a Catholic artist, you know, like mm-hmm. where, where it is um, not every song that I sing is about God or to God as a worship leader no. in that sense. Um, but ultimately, I really hope that, that my music does lead people mm-hmm. um, you know, towards Him. To something greater. Do you, um, do you do worship? Like, are you, would you see yourself as a worship leader? Do you do that kind of work? Every once in a while I do. I really, really enjoy it. But mm-hmm. my favorite thing to do when it comes to um, that sort of thing is, is um, singing for adoration. Right. Um, yeah, I love that, um, you know, where you're in adoration and there's music maybe at the beginning and in the middle yeah, and then at the end. Of That's course. just it's one of the coolest things I love doing, man. I don't do it very much. Mostly it's my, you know, singer-songwriter yeah. thing is what I'm doing. But of I do course. enjoy enjoy it. Of course, and you're you're definitely busy. You're today. You're at the Behold Conference in in Illinois, and you're going to be in Austin on March 12th, Minneapolis March 20th, Atlanta. That's all over the place. March 21st, back to Virginia. March 21st, Connecticut. April 12th, Charlotte, North Carolina. May 3rd. Um, uh, that's what you do, right? You're just yeah. <laughs> I know, and, and even even as we're speaking, I'm thinking, okay, well, there's just been about five more dates added to that great um so yeah which is good so i'm excited yes i i the whole conference is just incredible i mean i'm so happy yeah we learned all about it last yeah we learned all about it last yeah um um, that's great so if people want to book you for an event for adoration or for anything they can do that they just go to your website mariemillermusic.com and they can yes, exactly. get that information. Okay, good. We're going to leave it there then. Um, I, I'm really enjoying your music. I'm looking forward to getting more of it. And, uh, awesome. and uh, th- it's been great chatting with you and, and meeting you, and, and maybe hopefully our paths will cross one day. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to talk to you. You can learn all about Marie Miller. You can buy her music or book her for your event at her website, as I said, mariemillermusic.com. She's also on Twitter. Be sure to follow her and on Facebook. Be sure to like her on Facebook. And here now is Marie Miller with the title track of her album, You're Not Alone.
listening to Marie Miller with You're Not Alone from her album of the same name. That concludes this special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. Remember, visit us at saltandlighttv.org slash radio. Thank you for listening. I'm Deacon Pedro. You're not alone.